0: This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue, the next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home? Or takeout. I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork egg foo young sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash Altitude Go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Welcome to Special Sauce, Series Eats' podcast about food and life. Every week on Special Sauce we talk to some of the leading lights of American culture food folks and non-food folks alike.
1: It's a old journalism adage, right? Whenever everyone is going left, you go right. Yeah. And a lot of times that other direction that's going to hit the sweet spot is something that you experienced, that you observed, that you're complaining to your friends and family about and like, you know, not underestimating the unique but also the universality of mm-hmm. your experience.
0: Back with us is the James Beard Award winning and the great food and culture writer, Osai Endelin. So we got to talk about fried chicken because I love fried chicken. Who doesn't? And you wrote a wonderful piece about it in You and I Eat the Same, which is this wonderful book that I wasn't even aware of until I saw your essay. And so I literally like, I wonder if the publicist would, would get... and she, In an hour, she got me the book Uh. last night. So let's talk about that piece because it's an amazing piece because it's both a searing indictment and almost hopeful at the end. Hmm. And that's a hard thing to get in one piece.
1: Yeah, that was it was a tough nut to crack. There yeah, was a, so Chris Ying, um, who conceived of this collection, um, has been working with Renee Redzepi um, on this series. Uh, Teamed me up for this this piece. We had gone back and forth on a number of ideas over, I would say, maybe almost a year. Wow. <laughs> uh, and things were just not quite gelling. Um, and when we finally landed on this, you know, he kind of had uh, the premise in mind, and um, but let me run with it, and the you know, fried
0: chicken of all nations premise.
1: Yes, this idea that if we start, it's it's obviously not true that food always brings us together, and it's obviously not true that food necessitates a. Further reflection on a culture, right? Like a lot of us eat tacos or hummus without thinking anything more about where those right. um those dishes come from. But if you took the premise that we're more alike than we are different, and looked at food as the medium to do that, where could you go? Um, and this book wanted to explore, you know, migration and immigration in ways that maybe we weren't always welcoming of, you know, having having those conversations. So I was really thrilled to be a part, and I felt. Uh, strongly that there needed to be an African-American experience in this conversation, which, you know, sometimes—although African-American has grown to encompass many different experiences and uh, types of movement from one diaspora to another— it often gets left out because it's really inconvenient to talk about this history that's based in in so much tragedy, yet you know spurred so much beauty and 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 diversity. And that's still, I think, an ongoing and fairly new conversation: the the diversity of African American cooking, um, which you know many people are on on that tip. You know, and I think we're going to see more of that in the the next year or two in terms of books coming out and projects that people are working on um, and restaurant openings. But the story for me was to look at how this chef, Morgan McLone, who's um, you know in in Australia, originally from New Zealand, came to the American South uh, in a kind of talk about roundabout way. He had many different um, streams of his career, and you know landed in Sean Brock's kitchen. Sean and, Brock is the great Southern chef from yes,
0: Husk and. Yes.
1: During a time when Sean Brock was, you know, and he continues to, but doing a lot of study and reflection on um, the intricacies of Southern cuisine and um, certainly not the only person to do it, but the exposure there was inspiring to McGlone and he ended up taking ideas from Hot Chicken that he had had and said you know this could look really great back home. You um, should say that Hot
0: Chicken was first made famous in Nashville right Princes was the
1: legendary right I don't know if it was
0: really the first place but it was certainly the first place that
1: I went to Yes and they certainly you know put themselves on on the map as being the place where it all it all started um, but you know it certainly came out of black communities you know in Nashville. And, you know, he takes this idea and launches a brand in um, Australia that's done very well called Bells. You know, we kind of wanted to look at this. What's the what's the middle part there that seems interesting? You know, every culture fries bird in some way. But if you take American fried chicken out of America, what gets left behind? It's like that migration movement that we were talking about earlier. Uh, Do you leave the history behind? Right. and, And how much... Is that responsible? And do we even really understand the history here? And, you know, what does that – does that constrain us or does that liberate us and how? So those are yeah. some of the questions that – I don't know that I really answered any of those no, questions. No, but, you know, there, but, there's, you know. The,
0: there's a great quote that you, you know, that you say at the end of the piece, which is – you say that McGlone has landed on the two questions that give all food consequence. Is it tasty and does it mean something? And so you quickly and easily – to say that fried chicken is indisputably tasty. Indisputably. And there was not much to say about that. It's eaten all over the planet as you say and it's and you know, fried chicken is kind of like pizza because even bad fried chicken is okay.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I say that if somebody's yes. written an entire book on pizza yes, and many pages on fried chicken. And so with its deliciousness unquestionable, all that remains is what fried chicken means. Mm-hmm. No matter where it's cooked, American fried chicken carries the learning and effort and skill of a people who persevered against unfathomable odds. That southern you follows fried chicken all the way to Melbourne and Sydney, too. And therein lies an incredible opportunity. If everyone can agree to share fried chicken, that perhaps that's a step towards sharing the weight of its complex legacy as well. And that not only is that beautiful writing, but there's a glimmer of hope there. Did you think you would land on a glimmer of hope um, when you first
1: started the piece? Uh, I think that was that was on the horizon. You know, you're never quite sure. Uh, I mean, sometimes the ending comes to you. Before you get to it, but I know that the book wanted, I you know,
0: since the book was about bringing people yeah, together, and I, I
1: I understood the book wanted to strike an optimistic tone, and I and I did, I did believe that because that is a possibility. I don't know on what timeline we're talking about <laughs> that actually coming to fruition. Um, there's a there's a lot of struggle. It doesn't always come from one direction. You know, as I mentioned in the book because of so much of the hateful iconography that was used to depict African Americans you know stealing chickens and like kind of you know just being gluttonous chicken eaters you know during the post-enslavement period and you know into Jim Crow you know you have a lot of people who still feel kind of unsure about what it means to eat fried chicken whether or not to do so in public yeah that was a fascinating yeah. sentence that even today
0: yeah a lot of African- American people don't want to eat fried chicken in public
1: just because of all the baggage. I think that's changing, but I don't think the conversation is gone internally. Right. Um, at the Smithsonian's um, National Museum for African-American History and Culture, fried chicken is on the menu, but you know, notably of all the different regions of foodways that they explore in their cafeteria, uh, Sweet Home Cafe, which, by the way, just came out with a beautiful uh, cookbook, watermelon is I was not on the menu when I when I went there, um, and I've you know heard it reported that they just didn't even want to Go
0: bring ahead. it in because,
1: you know, yeah. that experience of coming through all these historic images, many of them very painful, it's like, do you want to then come into this place in the museum experience where you're resting and you're trying to recover and move on to these galleries that show the beauty of this culture and then have to deal with whether or not you want to be biting into a rind? I mean... <laughs> That 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 may have changed since I was there, sure. but just the fact that these are things that people are talking about, and I think it's important to understand, it's not always about something being good. Sometimes it's about what it what it means, uh, you know, to have that in your household. I don't. No one in my house ever cooked fried chicken. We would sometimes have it as like a fast casual meal or even like a fast food meal, and that was rare. And I mean rare. We did not do fast food a lot in my house, but. I didn't even know what it took to fried chicken um, until I was an adult. And then you're almost amazed that people, you know, actually, that this is available for us all the time, anytime, you know, day or night. It's like it's a lot of work. Yeah. And
0: you also make this really interesting observation in in the same piece. There is a distinct pattern in the United States where African-American chefs struggle to find parity with their white counterparts in terms of recognition, funding and reward. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes for many aspects of black culture. Like I I spent years, as you know, 20 years working with principally African-American jazz musicians, Mm -hmm. and that was the story they told every day. That was their life. That was their life story.
1: Yeah. each and every it's one. It's like you know, you're supposed to do it faster with fewer resources and be more exceptional uh, <laughs> and get less credit. Right. <laughs> uh, that's just across the board. Yeah, and um, you know, I think every industry has tried to figure out you know its ways of, of navigating that. But uh, yeah, for sure, I've I've heard a lot of stories. Um, so my grandmother's. Uh, First daughter before my mother was born was um, my aunt Patrice, Patrice Russian. And um, I was gonna say, Russian, that's a you know, (laughs) Patrice Russian is this beautiful musician. Yeah, she's a fantastic musician. She uh, currently um, chairs the pop music program at USC's Thornton Music School and has been doing really wonderful things there but you know throughout her really varied career she has had experiences as you know uh, a band leader she's a pianist a composer as an African
0: American
1: woman right jazz band leader yes and uh you know uh, music director for for tours for all kinds of artists for award shows uh, you know, the Grammys, and WACP Image Awards, you know, many, many different um, experiences, many hats that she's worn, and uh, many accolades that she's received. But, you know, because of her multiple, you know, streams of, of experience, you know, she's gotten to see a lot, too. And um, there's a lot of unfortunate parallels that um, that map between, you know, uh, blackness in food and blackness in music and uh, sort of from kind of only being able only being expected to be able to do one genre you know sure uh you know my aunt was classically trained uh she she studied you know as a you know uh, with the jazz greats as well um you know she understands all the technology so she can you know do the the newer iterations of the things that came from R&B and jazz as well but uh, you know, people are somehow shocked when, you know, they hear a symphony, you know, right. the Detroit Music sure. Orchestra. Sure. It's like, you know, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be surprising to you that um, an African American chef, you know, he can cook something of Asian dis- uh, background. She can make something that has Latin influences. And, right. And, and, right. And the same thing goes, you know. Yeah, it's me.
0: sure. And you know, if you if I now that I think about it, it's like there's a sort of link between your aunt and And what Wynton Marsalis has done Mm -hmm. at Jazz at Lincoln Center, where he has, um, you know, he's like, I can do this and I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. I don't want to be seen as just another uh, African-American, New Orleans-born jazz musician.
1: And I think, you know, from my own uh, observations, that's a perspective, and you know, you'll have to talk to – Marsalis today and find out where he's at about it but I think that he's evolved because I think you know in the earlier days I mean like maybe in the 90s he was very strict about Super wanting purist. it you, know, you play oh, it this yeah. way and only this way and Absolutely. this is the way it's meant to be done and I think there's a balance between um recognizing tradition and valuing it and learning it and understanding it, particularly as more and more of these genres are played by people who are not African American or who did not necessarily come from these lineages. Uh, it's really under, it's really important to know like where these uh, you know where that blue scales came from, yeah you know, what prompted that. And so you know to, to know that is important, but to be able to evolve it and keep it current and making it feel you know alive is crucial too. So who inspires you to be a writer? Who
0: taught you the most about writing? This is a three-part question, so I apologize. That's okay. And what advice would you give to young, aspiring writers about food and culture?
1: Uh,
0: you have 30 seconds
1: for <laughs> Well, Well, um, I think the, the closest uh, and most constant influence for writing – came from my mom because she encouraged me so much to read and she was such a supporter of me reading. I really think for writers to have a chance, you have to read a lot. And um, that's not always the connection that people make. Yeah. uh, I read a ton as a kid. I mean, it was a problem sometimes. I had I had books taken away from me because they were a little outside my age level. Well, wow, that, that little was little never pro- my problem. <laughs> yeah, I got caught with reading uh, I, Tina, Tina Turner's um, <laughs> biography. <laughs> that was not a great day. Um, <laughs> I was like 10 or something. And then, you know, as I kind of, started to actually think about writing professionally. I was in my late twenties. I, I came to it kinda late. I think I think for a long time I didn't think that I didn't know how to even conceive of a career like that. And it was really out of desperation and sort of fatigue of trying to piddle my way around that I just said, you know, screw this. I'm just gonna go for what I really want. And that turned out to be the thing that Right had, yeah, Doors opening up for me. But um my um one of my best friends, Bailey, her father Mike Castro, who died a few years ago, was a huge influence on me, um in my writing and he would give me a lot of uh, constructive and sometimes difficult feedback um, was he a writer himself? He was he was a writer he was a photographer he was brilliant he uh, was uh, like he was a Puerto Rican Jew uh, living in San Francisco and oh uh, <laughs> that huge population of Puerto Rican Jews living in San Francisco <laughs> oh man, just like I mean he just uh he was a special special man and I, I miss him a lot and you know he really, He gave me a lot of uh, courage and encouragement. And I think when you're at that early period where you're trying to figure out who you are as a writer and what matters to you and, you know, what your take is on a subject that, you know, any number of people might write about, but what makes you uh, the person to have this conversation, you know, he was very forthright with me about not bullshitting, not being too distant, you know, always pushing me to, you know, he was kind of like, blood on the page you know like I want I want to feel it I want to see it and so um, but you do that and you have this
0: combination of an elegant pro stylist and and being an incredibly conversational writer Mm. my writing heroes were the late Nora Ephron and Bud Trillin because Mm -hmm. of their the way they could combine those two things
1: and I think you can have writing influences from I mean so I I loved and still love a lot of Joan Didion's writing. I think, you know, she's just a master. But I knew that wasn't quite my, yeah. you know, I tend to be a little more optimistic than, than Ms. Yeah. Didion, so I, and I knew that wasn't quite where I was going. But I'm trying to think of other, you know, certainly Maya Angelou. Um, you know, I, I so admired, uh, talk about a conversational writer, you know, you just felt like she was sitting next to you telling you, you know, her life story. Uh, And then you'd come across some phrasing and it's like, gosh, like how, how does she do that? Um, You asked me, so who were those influences? And then what would I say?
0: Well, you've already said (laughs) you should be reading a lot.
1: Yes. I think reading a lot is really important. Looking inward uh, so often, particularly with social media, I think we're driven to go out and chase experiences and do what other people are doing. And that to a degree, I think that can be useful because it helps give you a sense of uh what you think about, you know, what's what's trending and what's popular. But it's a old journalism adage, right? Whenever everyone is going left, you go right. Yeah. And a lot of times that other direction that's gonna hit the sweet spot is something that you experienced, that you observed, that you're Complaining to your friends and family about, and like that's the thing that you should put in a couple yeah. of paragraphs and pitch it. Um, so you know, not underestimating the uniqueness, but also the universality of mm-hmm. your experience, I think, is really important for for people who are kind of starting out and to find someone who can be a cheerleader for you. Find someone who you know will read your shitty drafts and yeah, um, might- and and and. And I think in my case, uh, I actually had a great
0: my, – for my first book, a great book editor who mm. encouraged me to be both universal and unique at the same time, which yeah. is I think what you're saying. And you need editors that push you in both directions. Right. And that's – they're hard to find.
1: They are hard to find. I mean, I was really lucky with Mike. I was really fortunate. Um, I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design for my MFA. I attended the Atlanta campus. And, you know, I knew um, having, ta- having been out of school for a few years, I studied French and um, Afro American Studies at UCLA and I really didn't know what to do after that and it was about 6 years before I applied for that grad program but when I did I was really clear and I was really ready and so I you know everything that my professors gave me every writer that came to visit every you office hour, soaked it all in. I was like, I mean, to the point where it would probably like <laughs> damage some relationships <laughs> with my peers because I was just so clear. But, you know, you're paying a high price for that education and, you know, you don't want to waste time. I mean, I kind of yeah. felt like, gosh, you know, I figured this out, what felt to me a little late. And so I didn't want to you waste, any waste time, moment. And yeah. um, I've been, I feel very grateful for, you know, having those opportunities because that exploration, you know, uh, having people who are who get lit up around your enthusiasm for learning something, um, that's a really special mm-hmm. relationship. And uh, I, I was, I got a lot of encouragement. You know, it was it was challenging, and you know, you get to try a lot of different things out. And you know, SCAD for me also was a place where yes, it's good to kind of do what you're good at, but you're also encouraged to stretch out. You know, I tried my hand at photography, I tried my hand at printmaking, got a whole new appreciation for what it takes to roll paper through a press and see what comes out on the other side. And those kinds of things, you know, humble you, I think, and bring you to another level of appreciation in terms of how you tell story, how you bring images to life through words, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. So I think cross-pollinating yourself too as a writer is important, you know. I. Was at a performance space last night, um, this beautiful uh, uh, exhibit that just closed called Black Power Naps, where these artists, uh, Niv Acosta and Fanny Sosa, had uh, created. Uh, Physical space for Black people to rest, inspired by it's a study they had observed where African Americans are the least rested demographic in our in our nation. Wow! And this idea that you know, hey, if you see people lying down in this space, don't call the police, right? And they had all this verbiage that, but it was also like this really nurturing, soothing environment. There, everyone was just kind of lounging. That is influencing me as a storyteller. Yeah. Right? So you know, having the the openness to go and yeah. investigate things like that—that's um, great. I think is important.
0: So now it's time for the all-you-can-answer special sauce buffet. So we don't have a, a bell that we ring, but um, we ask you to move along in a timely manner. Yes.
1: Was yeah. it your I'm last so stressed supper? Out. <laughs> no
0: family allowed, and it can be people living or dead, artists, musicians, politicians, anybody that you think would be interesting to share your Last Supper with?
1: So, um, Ida B. Wells, the journalist and activist, she was talking about lynching before a lot of people were and advocating for you know African Americans to be liberated and to be really free, really, really, truly really free. And it's not a name that yeah. you hear very often. I've only read a little bit about her. Yeah, I, I need to know more about her, but just from, you know, one of these, I'm kind of on a project right now we're trying to explore... The sort of undertold told uh, African American figures of American history, um, and I think that uh, she's someone who I'm starting to yeah. learn more about and be kind of riveted by how brave and courageous yeah. she was. All right, so she's um, there. So she's there. Uh, also, because I think a lot of these figures, you know, get like kind of tied up in their. Import, but you know, she probably had to have a pretty good sense of humor. All right. You know, Zora Neale Hurston, I think, is up there too. It's another writer, of course, that as many of us love from, you know, Their Eyes Were Watching God and so many other. More recently, Bear Coon, her long awaited nonfiction work. Um, I think Diane Reeves is a just phenomenal vocalist, and I've seen her perform so many times. I've never really had a conversation with her. i I used to work at a you know, concert productions. So I would actually be very close to her proximity, proximity wise, but um you know, she's someone who brings so much of herself to her performance. You know, no single iteration is the same. And yeah, I think she's a great singer. Joy to and I for, think an
0: underappreciated yeah. great jazz singer because she's a yeah. phenomenal improviser.
1: Oh, she's a she's a joy. I, I don't know, I think those those ladies would probably All right. be at the table. I think yeah. we're good. Yeah. So what are you eating? What are we eating at the t- at the yeah. dinner? Yeah. Uh oh my gosh, I I would love a persimmon dish on this. On All right, this spread. So you're the know. first person who's ever said persimmon <laughs> dish. But keep going. Some kind of like persimmon dish. Um, I think it would be great. Maybe some like roasted lamb. Uh, like a but, barbacoa or a, uh, just like a lamb. More lamb yeah. roast. Yeah, I think you know some Some umami in there with maybe okay. like some. some that anchovy, olive oil paste, right. some, some herbs, I like herb. this. Um, I don't know why, but I think dandan noodles should be on this table. <laughs> there ought to be some biscuits or, like, a cornbread. All right. Like and, and then all that's left is a dessert. A dessert. Um, well, we need a vegetable. Maybe, like, Brussels. I love okay. pecan, like roasted Brussels. Okay. And um, pecan pie, probably. Pecan pie.
0: Dessert. All right. I like it. <laughs> so
1: um, what's on your nightstand right now, bookwise? Oh, literally! Um, I have uh, my sister is a serial killer. Um, <laughs> the novel. Um, okay. It's a fairly new book. Um, Jessmine Ward, Salvage the Bones. I've read a movie. lot about that book, but yeah, read uh, it. uh, it's striking. And um, I also have a uh, bunk by Kevin Young the noted poet who is also the director of the Schomburg Center for for Black Culture Research. But um, he does this interesting investigation into kind of how we start to tell lies culturally, and it's an interesting book to read now. Um, Cool. Yeah.
0: So um, who would you love to have a one-on-one lunch with just to see how she or he thinks?
1: You know, I think it would be really cool to sit down with Ava DuVernay, the film director. Uh huh. I feel like I. I feel like I understand a lot about how she thinks because she's been so open about, yeah, yeah. You know, her processes. But you know, yeah, that would be. Yeah, I like I that. Like to talk to more.
0: So it's just been declared Osai the Day all over the world. <laughs> okay, I just declared it. What's happening on that day? What are people doing?
1: People are um, maybe if like so I love. Body and energy work. Uh, so there's going to be yoga classes at different levels if you're interested. Uh, a yoga class everyone. on every block. For everyone. There's going to be massage therapy. I really love a good uh, reflexology, foot reflexology. All right. There's going to be um, Swedish fish for everyone. <laughs> And um, I like the combination of Swedish fish and yoga. <laughs> yes. And um, there will be um, any book, any book you want, it will just appear in front of you. Got like, it. Yes. For free. Yeah. You can just have <laughs> I that like book. that. Yeah. That's an awesome day. And I think that um, there will also be maybe jollof rice for everyone. <laughs> jollof rice. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You, that, Which is – we,
0: we should explain that jollof rice is native to – Well, that's a big debate. Yeah, I, I know. know you but, ask.
1: but uh, you know, from my neck of the woods, that's – you know, it's a Nigerian right. tomato-based rice dish that, you know, if you're familiar with, like, um, red rice, uh, right. Savannah red rice uh, – you know you're going to have a sense of jollof rice, which yeah. tends to have I think I think a more robust uh, flavor profile. Yeah, more uh, intense for but sure. But sort of uh, kind of that ceremonial party dish that uh, you can't you can't do without. Yeah. Uh, but you know the sangalies and the ghanames and the
0: so there's jollof <laughs> rice yeah. and Swedish fish for food. I like yes. that. <laughs> it's very colorful. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your special sauce with us, Sayyedul Oh, O'Sai this would be great. Do pick up a copy of You and I Eat the Same on the countless ways food and cooking connect us to one another and read her brilliant take on fried chicken. And go to acaiendalyn.com, which is what I did, where you'll find a great introduction to her work. And soon, hopefully, you'll be seeing Osai's writing on Serious Eats. Let's make it happen. (laughs) So long, Serious Eaters. We'll see you next time. This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue, the next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home? Or takeout, I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork egg foo young sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery. And two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value at slash altitude go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go Card. Learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply.
1: From PR.